Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Tuesday, April 14th, and this is your FT News Briefing. China's venture capital funding rallies after the coronavirus lockdown, and Amazon bucks the trend of mass job cuts in the U.S. economy. Then we'll look at why oil traders doubt new supply cuts will be enough to rescue the market. And the FT's global business columnist, Rana Faruhar, will argue that when it comes to real estate markets, WeWork's troubles offer some lessons for a post-coronavirus world. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Venture Capital saw an opportunity in China last month and took it. Chinese startups and technology companies raised more than $2.5 billion in VC funding in March. That's six times the amount that was raised in February, when the world's second-largest economy was at a virtual standstill. Those figures are according to data from the Asian Venture Capital Journal. These numbers suggest that funds took advantage of lower valuations due to the effect of the coronavirus pandemic. They set their focus on sectors such as biotechnology and online education. A $1 billion financing round for an online education startup, Yuan Fudao, was a key driver of last month's increase. It was led by investors including Chinese technology company Tencent. But even with March's increase, VC financing still fell by more than half in the first quarter compared with the same period in 2019. Amazon is adding even more workers to handle the uptick in coronavirus-induced demand. Yesterday, the e-commerce giant said it will be hiring an extra 75,000 people to fulfill orders. The announcement came less than a month after Amazon hired 100,000 workers, bucking the trend of mass job cuts in the U.S. economy. It'll bring Amazon's workforce to just shy of 1 million worldwide. Amazon's latest moves come as it contends with the spread of coronavirus within its own logistics operation. More than 50 locations in the U.S. have confirmed cases, and the expanded workforce will only increase the scrutiny of the safety of workers. Employees say there's a lack of necessary supplies to keep them safe from the virus. Now that OPEC member countries, Russia, and other allies have agreed to an oil production cut to the tune of nearly 10 million barrels a day, there are new questions. The main one is, what does this mean in the context of oil demand now? And why didn't these countries agree to an even higher production cut? The FT's senior energy correspondent, Anjali Raval, has more. It fell slightly short of the 10 million barrels a day initially agreed last week because a concession was made to Mexico to allow it to curb production by a smaller amount than other producers. Saudi Arabia and other Gulf producers say that the cuts are actually a lot bigger. Their production has accelerated to huge levels over the last month, and so they will be making even bigger cuts than the others. Now, what OPEC plus countries, they're saying once you add in contributions from other producers, such as the US, Canada and Brazil, this could take the tally to above 15 million. And if you factor in oil purchases by countries for their strategic stockpiles, the level could be even greater. Now the question is, how many of these cuts will come through and how many of them will be real? That's what we're all assessing now. So, Angela, why why wasn't there more of a, a positive reaction to the cuts? So there was an initial uptick and then, in fact, prices then quickly fell before they rose up again very slightly. Now, the reason for this is because either oil traders and others in the market, they don't believe the size of the curbs are going to be enough 
because the drop in demand could be far greater, around 30 million barrels a day, let's say in April alone, or they don't believe that countries will be able to fulfill their pledges because some countries cheat. There might not be ways to monitor every single producer to make sure it's sticking to their share of the bargain. So all of these factors together are leading to a pretty damp reaction. Now, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the U.S. push for this. Why was Donald Trump so adamant about getting this deal through? So Donald Trump, in the end, ended up as a major impetus for the deal and acted as a mediator of sorts in the negotiations. And he flip-flopped ahead of the meetings last week. He went from championing lower gasoline prices, it's great for the U.S. consumer, particularly ahead of an election, But he quickly realized that the U.S. shale industry is a massive employer of people, particularly in oil states like Texas. And there are a huge number of companies and oil executives that were fuming about the idea of lower prices uh, near 18-year lows. He ended up mediating a situation whereby Mexico was allowed to cut by a smaller margin ended up placating Saudi Arabia, which is a traditional ally, but also threatening Saudi Arabia by saying that they could put tariffs on the kingdom's oil coming into the kingdom and whatnot in order just to get this deal through. The reason why the deal was significant in lots of ways was because of this international cooperation. Whether or not it succeeds by the numbers, it was a bit of a coup in the sense that there was backing not only from the US, but also Saudi Arabia, Russia, the wider G20 group of countries, as well as the International Energy Agency. And all of these groups came together, which shows just how dire the situation is and the drastic actions needed to alleviate the situation we're in. WeWork has been back in the news lately, most recently for its battle with SoftBank. Members of the board of the loss-making property group are suing the tech investor for backing out of a $3 billion share buyout deal. But the FT's global business columnist, Rana Faruhar, is focusing on WeWork for another reason. She says the biggest lesson WeWork's misfortune foreshadows is one that deals with real estate. The value of global real estate is more than stocks and bonds combined. If you count the industry as a whole and all of its knock-on effects in the U.S., it's about 18% of GDP. So this is a huge deal. Commercial real estate in particular had doubled in value since the 2008 financial crisis. That was due in part to the easy money policy that the Fed had allowed over the last decade. That had brewed up a huge bubble. WeWork reflected that in the sense that it became one of these Silicon Valley unicorns, but then eventually had to pull its IPO because the bubble was already starting to deflate and nobody really believed that this company was actually a a digital giant. It just turned out to be a real estate company. It's like the curtain came back. There's so many things happening in the market right now that are, are really exemplified by this firm. So, Rana, you touched on this a little bit, but can you expand on the core supply and demand issues in real estate leading up to this point and what what it actually means now? Yeah. So if you look at supply, as I said, we already had a huge bubble in certainly in commercial real estate. In terms of the demand side of things, you know, you had the, the Trump trade war with China had driven not just Chinese, but a lot of foreign buyers in general out of the US market. And those were really big in the commercial and luxury sectors in particular. You also had these kind of slower burn issues like millennials post-financial crisis coming into a market with 
high unemployment, tons of student debt. They simply were not buying homes at the same level that their peers of a previous generation or two might have. So now you bring to that a collapsing market, a pandemic, and you just sort of put on steroids all those existing trends and you start to get the effect of the debt bubble that's now imploding and the fact that real estate is a highly leveraged sector. It's going to have lots and lots of snowball effects where bad news on Main Street will funnel back into Wall Street, will funnel back to Main Street and just snowball and snowball and you know become more of a problem. And then finally, you get this issue of what's the world going to look like post-COVID-19. And, and, and to that point, Rana, what does the world look like in, in terms of real estate when the dust does finally settle. The way I think about it at the highest level is we've been living for the last, certainly the last 10 years, but really the last 40, 50 years since the 1980s in a world in which everyone, companies, consumers, countries wanted to maximize efficiency and productivity. And so they were willing to throw a lot of money at things for that to happen. So big, tall buildings, just-in-time supply chains, things that could actually be quite fragile in a pinch, but would maximize productivity and maximize potential returns in the short term. That was what you wanted to do. Now, I think we're moving to a world in which safety, security, and resiliency are really important. I think companies are going to be marshalling their capital. They're going to look around if they survive the next year or so. They're going to look around and say, hey, do we really need that very expensive leased space in a tall office building in prime San Francisco or New York? Or have we actually seen in the last year and a half that our employees can work at home? And in fact, maybe that's fine for productivity. And hey, it's better for the climate too. With all the debt relief and mortgage relief that's going on, on the one hand, that's great for short-term relief, but it creates this kind of sense that all the trends that had been tailwinds are going to become headwinds. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. And if you want to know more about Rana's thoughts on the future of American real estate, I've provided a link to her column in the show notes. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.